I suppose that we've, we've all probably had this experience. We're kind of discouraged or down about something and we kind of pour our heart out to somebody and we tell them about everything that's going wrong and we make all of our complaints and, and then the person we're talking to looks at us and says, well, it could be worse. You think, that's real encouraging, you know, it could be worse. <laughs> Or worse yet, some of you fellows, you probably said that to your wives, you know, from time to time, and wonder why they look the way they do after you say that. But uh, at at the risk of really, really, uh, you know, not helping, I'm going to try to do that this morning. Now, here's what I propose. It's been a tough time, I think, for everyone in our country going back to last March. It's just been one of those years where, you know, we couldn't imagine a year ago where we were, where we're now at. I mean, it, it just didn't seem like that was possible. And the events of the last year, even of the last month, of the last week, has been something that has weighed heavily on our hearts and minds. And the risk for us as Christians, I believe, is that we get so focused on what's happening in this world that it affects us spiritually. We're not drawing upon the resources, the strength that we have in the Lord. And I don't know about you, but when I read this following story, the one that I'm going to follow up with here in a moment. It was kind of like that, well, it could be worse, thanks. (laughs) But I kind of needed that. Because I think that the temptation right now is that we think, well, everything's horrible. But you know, Christians have flourished in circumstances a whole lot worse than what we're dealing with. For example... And here's the story I was telling you about. It comes from Chuck Colson's book, Loving God. The man's name is Kornfeld, with a K in English. Boris Kornfeld. Dr. Boris Kornfeld was a Jewish medical doctor in Russia in the 1940s. He was thrown into the gulag, Nobody knows, or at least I don't know, why, but he was. Probably for something he said or did. They gave him a job at the forced labor camp. His job was to medically certify that all the folks doing slave labor that had been put in the camp were healthy. It didn't matter whether they were really healthy or not. He was just there to tell everybody they were healthy. In fact, he was told if uh, if some of the uh, the inmates, or whatever they called them, I don't know what they called them, I'll call them inmates, if some of the inmates uh, die of starvation, that's all right, but just make sure they don't die in a hospital, because everybody's healthy. Well, he began to question a lot of things. His job required him to be uh, dishonest. 
But if he wasn't dishonest, I mean, it could always get worse, even if you're in a place like that, right? It just so happened that Dr. Kornfeld came in contact with another person there that was doing the slave labor. There was a Christian. And he told, he told Dr. Kornfeld about Jesus Christ, and about the love of God, and about Christ's sacrifice on Calvary. And lo and behold, God touched Dr. Kornfeld with his grace. And he placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And he accepted him as his Messiah. It changed everything. Now, he did what was right, as best he could. When one of the guards who had viciously beaten him previously needed surgery, and he was the only one to do it, he was tempted to suture him up in a way that would allow him to bleed out slowly and die. Nobody would have known, but he said he couldn't do it. He did the surgery the right way instead. Day by day, it is said that people could hear him murmuring under his voice as he went from one responsibility to another, these words. Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Dr. Kornfeld was enduring some very difficult circumstances. He was living, living them day by day. But yet he became a man through Christ that rose above his circumstances to do what God expected him to do. To be resolute about what he believed and how he should live. Last week we talked about that word resolute. We defined it. Straight from the dictionary, the state of being resolute means to have firm determination. To have make a decision and be firm about it and follow through. Of course, the word resolute, another way of speaking about uh, making a resolution. We talked about that last week a little bit. The... Five top resolutions that people make this year, or have made, or expect to make, or said they were going to make this year. Uh, I shared one of mine with you, which was to get more exercise. I'm still planning on it. You see, our, our resolutions are little more than wishes or intentions, rather than really firm resolutions. For those of us who make up the church of Jesus Christ, now today I believe we need more than anything else at this point in time, true resolve, determination. 
to be rock solid in all that we believe and how we choose to live. I don't think anything else could be more important, really, given the state of our world today and of our nation and where we may be headed. You see, we better know for sure what we believe. And we better hold to it. The thing about it is, if we do that, there may well be consequences. Thank God we have lived in a country that has probably been the most blessed country in the history of civilization. And we have lived, those of us who have been around for a while, have lived through some of the best possible years. But that's the exception on the pages of history. We may never be in Dr. Boris Kornfeld's situation. But yet we live in a world that is dominated by evil. The God of this world is active and he's powerful. He's a roaring lion who walks about seeking whom he may devour. And so we as God's people desperately need an attitude of resolve. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it and how we should act as a consequence of believing it. Now last week we began looking at the book of Acts, chapter 1, and we're not going to go all through the book of Acts, but I did want to look at the first 11 verses with you these two weeks. Because Luke, the physician, the writer, the human writer of Acts, gives us an introduction to the Acts of the Apostles. The work of the Holy Spirit now through the Apostles after the Lord Jesus has ascended back to heaven. And we have to remember that the church was birthed, hasn't yet in chapter 1, but it will shortly be birthed in chapter 2 if you're following along chronologically in the, in the book. The church is birthed in Acts chapter 2 in the worst possibles of circumstances, politically and culturally. Because the Jews are occupied by the Romans. The Romans, <laughs> they run everything. They dominate everywhere. They have conquered a known world, basically. And you do what you're told under those circumstances or face the consequences. And the church now comes on the scene in Jerusalem in that situation and circumstance. And it won't be long before Rome begins to come down on the church as well as the Jews. And there's much persecution ahead. And the people that made up the body of Christ here as the church comes into the world and comes into existence came into an evil world, and the world is still evil that we live in. Sin is still afoot. Satan is still at work. The circumstances are bleak. But the church thrived. The church grew in unprecedented ways in the book of Acts. And the church, though it was persecuted by Rome, eventually, eventually, spread throughout the empire and changed millions of lives since. 
So what was it that they clung to? What was it that they had fixed determination about? What was their resolve? That's what we're looking at here in Acts chapter 1. And so far, we have noticed these three things. Three of five crucial truths that say something about the attitude of resolve we should have. The first thing we noticed last week is that we, the church, God's people, have a person to serve. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Master. He is our Lord. He is our God. He is our Savior. He is the omnipotent God, the all-powerful God. At this juncture, the church is gathered here with a risen Lord who has risen from the grave and overcome death. And he's giving them instruction for how to carry on when he leaves them in a few days. We have a person to serve. They knew him personally. They saw him. They talked to him. We, through the Holy Spirit, can know him personally as well. Not only do we have a person to serve, but last week we also learned that we have a place to belong. In verse 6 it says, Therefore when they had come together. This is what you notice about the church. Immediately after the Lord is risen, they begin to come together. It is a natural thing for us to come together for support and encouragement and strength. It is a part of God's plan that the church provide the support, the encouragement, and the strength that all of us need. And it is so important that the Scripture commands us that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We have a place where we belong. A place where we can benefit spiritually and emotionally. Even physically. They tell us these days, statistics say... People are healthier that go to church. Then we also learned last week that we have the power to serve. In verse 8, Jesus said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now that word translated power in verse 8 means raw power, ability. Dunamis in the Greek comes right over into the English dynamite. Power, ability. What we think we cannot do, if God calls upon us to do it, we can do. Not because we have the ability, because God provides us with the power. Now we want to add to these three crucial truths this morning. Two more that I want you to look at with me here in this context. We also have a purpose... To fulfill, we'll talk about that first. Then I want you to notice we also have a promise to anticipate. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. But notice our purpose. Again, it's in verse 8 where we left off. But you shall receive power, says the Lord, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, (coughs) that happens in chapter 2 again in the book of Acts. And he's telling them to wait patiently there, gathered together until the Holy Spirit comes and permanently indwells each of them and empowers them. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come. 
upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. Here's the purpose that he has given us. Here's the purpose we have in this world as God's people. It is his purpose, his plan for us, that we be witnesses. But this is not a command here. He's not saying, go and be witnesses. He is just simply stating a fact. And he does so with the future tense verb. He's saying, you shall be witnesses. It's like a prophecy. You see, this is often connected with the Great Commission. It's not the same not the same, but they're very close. In the Great Commission, he says, go and make disciples. There's the command. Make disciples of all nations. And in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he said, because of the Spirit's power in your life, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be witnesses. The thing about it is, every one of us is a witness. That's not in question. The only question is, are we going to be a good witness or a bad witness? A good witness conveys the truth about something. A bad witness does not or will not, is not able to maybe. As we choose to live our life, what we believe and how we live as as a result is going to determine whether we're a good witness or a poor witness. Interestingly, back in 1999, the Barno organization did one of those surveys of born-again Christians in America and uh, came up with this. They said 53% of born-again Christians in America feel no sense of responsibility to tell others about Christ. That was in 1999. I don't I have no idea what the number would be today, but I can't imagine it being any better. of those surveyed said they didn't have any sense of responsibility to tell others. They have no purpose. What's a a Christian without any purpose? Well, I don't know. You see, you can't even conceive of that. We are Christians for a reason. Not just so we can live forever and and be eternally blessed. That's great. We should desire that. But the real reason we exist, the real reason God created us, and then the reason He had to save us was because we are meant to bring glory to God. We are meant to tell others about Him. And magnify Him. That's our purpose. Interestingly, I mentioned earlier that as time went on, the early church soon was persecuted. Even in the early pages of Acts, James, the brother of John, is killed by Herod, martyred. So it only got worse from there. But when the Bible says you shall be witnesses, the word witness in the Greek it's the Greek word martyr, martyres. Now, originally in the Greek language, it just meant a witness, like a witness at a trial or a witness, you know, that signs a paper, attesting to something. 
But so many Christians lost their lives because they maintained their witness to Jesus Christ and would not renounce him before the Romans. And so they were fed to the lions or put on crosses. So many of them died that way that it just became synonymous to refer to them as martyrs. And so it came to indicate those who had such a determined and resolute belief that they would rather die than renounce it. We are witnesses. We have a purpose to fulfill. But there's a strategic deployment mentioned in this verse as well. Look at it with me. You shall be witnesses to me, he says, in Jerusalem. That's where they're at, waiting on the Spirit to come. That's where there will be when the Spirit comes, and, and that's where it all begins. That's where the first church is, Jerusalem. In Jerusalem and in Judea, well, that's a broader area. That that goes from Hebron in the south all the way to Jerusalem, a little further north and, and east and west from the coast to the Jordan Valley. That's a broader area. And then he says, and in and Samaria. Well, Samaria was the, the, the current name in history here for the northern tribes of Israel, which stretch all the way up well, the east of or through the west of the uh, Sea of Galilee, all the way to the coast. And then he adds this, and to the end of the earth. Well, eventually the church spread throughout the Roman Empire, all the known world, and beyond that, of course, as history unfolded. There's never been any more powerful influence in the world than the church. If you look at the millions of people that have come to Christ throughout history and how it's changed humanity and culture, there's nothing ever been as powerful as the church. Now, the strategy here is not that you or I have to go from Willow Spring to Wake County to North Carolina to the United States to around the world. Now, obviously, there are aspects of our ministry that does. Our missionaries go literally around the world. <clears throat> our broadcasts go literally around the world. But you and I live right here. But every now and then, God picks up one of us and moves us somewhere else. Because God is in control of where we are strategically located. Well, you say, well, no, I decided to move there. Or my job sent me there. But God's in control of all that. You should know that. We just had three sermons on how God is in control, right? Last month. So God strategically deploys us where he wants us. One way he did that in the early church was he allowed Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, he allowed Saul to bring persecution on the Jerusalem congregation, and they scattered. That was of God, that the church scattered and reached more people. God does the deployment. God strategically puts us where we need to be, just like he did Dr. Boris Kornfeld. It was no accident. He was in the gulag. Not a place he would have chosen to be at all. But it was no accident. A prisoner 
was very seriously ill. He needed emergency surgery. Dr. Kornfeld did the surgery. I don't know if he did it with permission or not, but he did it. And as the man was trying to come out from under the anesthesia, he would kind of come to for a minute and then slip back. And each time that Dr. Kornfeld thought that he was coming to, he would get up close to his ear and begin to whisper to this man who was an unbeliever, begin to whisper to this man about the love of God and about the Lord Jesus Christ, and he would give him the gospel over and over as the man went back and forth between being basically awake and asleep. Dr. Kornfeld kept giving him the gospel. He had a burden that God had given him about this man's soul. When the man finally came completely out of the anesthesia, he woke up to screams. There were the screams of Dr. Cornfeld, who was brutally murdered down the hallway. Probably because of, well, just what I've described somehow or another. And that man, who had before been an unbeliever, soon accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. Because Dr. Kornfeld had a purpose. He knew his purpose. And he lived his purpose. So we have a purpose to fulfill. It involves how we live every day and what people see. That's part of our witness. It involves taking advantage of opportunities when people want to know, why, what makes you so different? But we have a purpose to fulfill. And then number five, and this is the last one, we have a promise to anticipate. A promise to anticipate. Now let's back up from verse eight to verses six and seven, which we basically skipped over both last week and so far this week. In verse 6, it says, Therefore, when they had come together, that's the part we have read and talked about, when we talked about having a place to belong. But notice what those that were gathered together said to Jesus. They asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now note carefully what they said. Will you restore the kingdom? What kingdom? David's kingdom. The kingdom of David. The Old Testament kingdom. The only kingdom Israel ever had. They were talking about, and they they were asking about, something that was real. Literal. A literal kingdom, an earthly kingdom, with an earthly king, with a real live king on the throne. They weren't asking about anything but that. And Jesus never said, oh, now, now, you know, there's a lot of Christians today that say, well, the kingdom, you know, that just means that, well, you know, we all, <clears throat> we all accept the Lord and he is just like the king in our hearts. Well, that's true. He ought to be the Lord of us individually. 
in this dispensation. But Jesus never said, no, 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 you're misunderstanding. I'm not talking about a literal kingdom. No, he understood what they were talking about. He knew about what they were saying. He knew what they were asking. And so he says in verse 7 to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. He didn't say you're wrong. He didn't say, no, you got this all wrong. You're misunderstanding. He just said, I can't tell you the time. Now the word times, it means a long expanse of time. And the word seasons means a smaller segment of time. That's 2021. Some of you probably hadn't realized that yet. It's 2021. 2021, if the Lord doesn't come back, you know, will be another normal year, 12 months. That's a time. But we're living in the winter of 2021, which is a season, a shorter period of time. And Jesus said to them, it's not for me to tell you, and it's not for you to know whether it'll be a long time or a short time. It's not been revealed. It's not been given. It's only under the authority of the Father. That means it could happen at any time, right? And he was talking about a literal kingdom. We go back to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2. The, the Abrahamic covenant, God gave to Abraham an unconditional promise. He said, I will make you a great nation. I will make of your descendants a great nation. Now Israel was a pretty great nation under David and Solomon. But we ain't seen anything yet. Excuse my English. I will make you a great nation. Now, let's go down to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. David is the king over the united tribes of Israel. The apex of their power militarily. King David. David wants to build a temple for the Lord in Jerusalem. And God says, no, it's not for you to do. That's going to be for your son to do. But he did give David a promise he said this, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. There's going to be somebody from your descendants set eternally on a throne in Israel. Now, I don't need to repeat this, but you'll remember last month again. We talked about the genealogy of Mary. She's a direct descendant of David. So the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes back, will fulfill this prophecy, this promise. He will be the son of David. He will be the, the descendant of David who will sit on the throne of Israel forever. But it will be a literal kingdom. Now, we don't know the time, but it will happen. No, the kingdom is not the church, and the church is not the kingdom. Don't be confused by those who want to somehow equate those two. The kingdom is not an in, 
not an invisible spiritual kingdom. It's a real, literal world kingdom. And it'll be characterized by righteousness and the perfect government and absolute justice in this world. Look at Revelation 19.15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. This is out of the Lord's mouth. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. So when the Lord comes back, he's going to defeat the armies of the Antichrist at the Battle of Armageddon. Out of his mouth, it's a symbolism, goes a sharp sword. He defeats the nations that are against him. And he himself then will rule them, the nations, with a rod of iron. Wow. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. When the Lord Jesus comes back, he will rule this very world with perfect righteousness, perfect judgment, with absolute justice for everybody. No question. We can't even... We can't even conceive of that. Yes, there's partial justice in this world. Occasionally there's justice in this world. The courts and government, it seems, can't get it right very often. Because we are flawed, we are sinners. But when Jesus Christ sits on the throne, there will be an absolute perfect Justice. And we're going to be helping him do this rule. Let's go on to uh, Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. To who? Who are these people sitting on multiple thrones? It has judgment committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those that had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. This happened in the tribulation. Who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Him a thousand years. God is going to take the perfect governance, the perfect justice that He will bring, and He's going to delegate it to you and me. Well, if we qualify, I don't know exactly to who, but to the church-age saints that are raptured. But you see, a lot of mortal human beings will enter into that kingdom at the end of the tribulation. They will need governance and justice and everything, just like we do in this world today. It will be a perfect system. Isn't that something to be desired? Yeah. Even so come Lord Jesus. Why do you think Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer that we ought to pray, Thy kingdom come! Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why pray that? That's not just empty words. Because that should be the desire of our heart. That should be what we're crying out for. Thy kingdom come. Rather than looking to men and looking to nations in this world today to somehow right the wrongs which will never happen. For the most part. It's just a pipe dream. Except that there's a kingdom coming. A kingdom coming. Let's drop down to verse 9. And when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and the cloud received him out of their sight. 
And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Now we understand these would be angels. Who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now look, they, they are said to be standing there gazing up. Now that's present tense. They're just, they're just transfixed. Ever, ever release a helium filled balloon and just watch it? Just, it just slowly goes up until it goes out of sight. This is, this is how he left. He just slowly rose up and ascended until he was out of sight. And they're just standing there looking. What just happened? And the angels are suddenly there and say, look, don't be puzzled over this. He's coming back the same way. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at verse 51 and 52, it says that when the rapture happens, that's going to happen instantaneously. Behold, I tell you a mystery, heretofore unrevealed. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. That Living believers, when Jesus comes back in the rapture in the clouds, seven years or about before the second coming, when he wins the battle of Armageddon and sets up the kingdom, his coming is in two phases, so to speak, the rapture and the complete revelation of him. So, verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, where the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and they shall be changed. That's going to happen instantaneously in the twinkling of an eye. You could be standing there, if the rapture were to happen today, and you were standing there talking to an unbeliever, and the rapture happened, that unbeliever would be talking to you one instant, the next minute you would just disappear. He couldn't even see it with the naked eye. Then after God's wrath is poured out on the earth, Jesus comes back. And when he comes back, according to Matthew 24 in verse 30, every eye will see him. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming. All the tribes of the earth, all the unsaved people in the world, they'll all see him coming. It'll be slow and deliberate, just like he went up. When he comes back at the end of the tribulation, when he comes back to set up his kingdom, they'll see him coming in the clouds with power and great glory. They can't miss it. His glory is it's going to be shining so bright. They can't miss it. They're all going to be looking and watching. He's coming. He's coming. The earth will be turning and every soul on earth will see it. That's what it's talking about here. So we have this promise to anticipate. Now, every day of our life, we should be anticipating. Jesus said, what should we be praying? Thy kingdom come. We should be anticipating it every day. That will give us strength. That will give us comfort. That will give us joy. That will give us resolve. And in the meantime, we're fulfilling the purpose He has for us in this wicked world. We're employing the power that He gave us to be witnesses. We are properly joined to the church of Jesus Christ, serving the person of the Lord Almighty. These 
are the crucial truths of Christianity. And it'll make a difference. See, we think our life doesn't count for a whole lot, and Boris Kornfeld probably thought the same, never knowing what happened to that patient that became a Christian. Oh, that, that patient of Dr. Kornfeld's, his name, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Ring any bells? He won the Nobel Peace Prize or literature. Nobel Peace Prize, Nobel, Nobel Prize in literature. Strike the peace part, I think. <laughs> he was a German, or excuse me, a Russian officer in World War II, decorated three times for valor. But he said something critical of Stalin in a private communication or letter and was thrown into the gulag. That's where he met Dr. Kornfeld on the operating table. Solzhenitsyn remained, remained there until Khrushchev let him out. And then he had other things to say and Khrushchev didn't like and they exiled him. They shipped him out of the country. He ended up living out the balance of his life in Vermont. Noted believer, Christian, accomplished writer. All because Dr. Boris Kornfeld was resolved to be a Christian, to live as a Christian, in spite of whatever the consequences may be. That's where you and I need to be. <clears throat> Now, last week, we gave you three resolutions for 2021 that follow along with these crucial truths. To serve the Lord with all your heart, number one. To serve other believers and value their ministry. That's the church connection. Number three, to rely on the Holy Spirit to do what we cannot do by ourselves. There's the power of the Spirit. Now, two more for this week. To be a good witness and introduce others to Christ. And resolution number five, to live in expectation of Christ's return. Now, I have mine right here. I printed it on a half sheet of paper. And then I'm folding that in half because that will fit perfectly in my Bible or whatever book I'm reading as a bookmark this year. So I can look at it over and over. So I can keep myself focused on where my mind needs to be focused and where my resolve needs to be. And I challenge you to do the same thing because you'll find them in printed form laying right here as a pile and right here some more over here on this corner of the table. And they're written out for you, just like you see them on screen. The verses in Acts are there for you too. Please pick one up. Please put it in your Bible or put it somewhere where you can refer to it every so often. When you're discouraged, when you're depressed about circumstances, the situation in this world, in this country, in your own personal life, take a look at that. 
Be serious about it. Be resolved about these five things. It'll help us rise above what circumstances we live in and what circumstances surround us. Because we are, as the Scripture teaches us, citizens of heaven. That's more of a reality than when we're citizens of the United States of America. 